0: Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. We thank you that when we put our faith in him, when we shift our trust from self to Christ, we are eternally secure in his hands and he eternally secure in yours. We thank you for his substitutionary death and we thank you for his substitutionary life as well. We pray that we would be faithful to learn what this means and all the implications on our lives. That we would be obedient to your word to walk by means of the spirit and not by means of the flesh we praise you and we thank you in the name of your son jesus amen all right you may all be seated we're in the last chapter of first john so it's coming to an end sadly Uh, and i know towards the end of a series is never a good time to change the name of a series but uh, this was faith fellowship forever In reading through it, I think a better title would be Faith, Fellowship, and Freedom. We have freedom in Christ. This is really what it's about. It sets us free, our faith in Christ. So a little change to our title towards the end of our series here. But the sermon this morning is Faith is Victorious, and we're going to learn just how faith is victorious, just what it is victorious over. The main idea this morning actually is not my idea. It's a quote from someone else, but when I read it, it made me pause and it made me read again and then read it again. And this is just one of those truths that when it starts to sink in, it's, it's one of those that uh, sends chills up your spine. So David Anderson writes, it is often said that the hardest thing in the world for the Christian to believe is the substitutionary death of Christ. On the contrary, the hardest thing to believe is the substitutionary life of Christ. We got victory over death by his death, and we shall have victory in life by his life. And so we want to consider what is our life in Christ? What is the faith that has victory? This is in response to... Kind of a rhetorical question that might come up in the mind of the reader as they finish John chapter 4, where John tells them this is the commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, the question may be present in their minds because it was well present in the minds of many Jewish factions leading up to the church age. Who is my brother? This was a debate that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all alike had through many ages. And for some, it was just simply those who agree with us in doctrine. When Christ came, he said that it is all those who have a need that you can fulfill under the law. That was your brother. But here, there is something going to be unique. Something different about the very character and nature of the people to whom John is speaking. Something that was not true. Of believers under the law something that is now true because the sacrifice of Christ has been finished and we can share his life John's response to who is our brother is whoever believes you have a new family the one who believes is now your brother your sister in Christ And this is, in the Greek, I think, actually a little clearer, and maybe it would be better, but English syntax doesn't quite work for this. Literally, this is all the believers. This doesn't work for giving us the content of what they believe, believe though. But when we think, who is our brother to whom we should be showing such sacrificial love as Christ showed towards us? The answer is, all the believers. Now, all believers are not that lovable. To be honest, this can be a very hard commandment to follow. Christ loved us all enough to die for us even while we were sinners, and it's because of our personal love with God through Christ, because we know him and we've come to know him and believe him and love him, that we are able to have impersonal love for our fellow believers. That means love whether or not we know them. We don't need to get to know someone in order to decide whether or not we love them. We don't need to actually enjoy being around these people to love them because love is a word that has been sadly caught up in the redefining game that this world plays. Many words have lost their meaning in the last few decades and even centuries, and love is sadly one of those casualties where love has become something of emotion, something that is self-centered. Something that I love this person because they please me, rather than being something that is sacrificial. Something that occurs despite feeling enjoyment, even, from that person. We find joy in Christ, and therefore we are able to love our brothers and sisters. And as we love Christ, and as we love our brothers and sisters, that love, that feeling of love towards them, is also going to follow see the action is going to come before the feeling but there's also something very important in here that john has said a few times and here he's dropped this again and he's going to pick it up in verse 5 and 6 but i think it's about time that we dive into a bit this content of faith that john is presenting whoever believes and this isn't just belief in anything this is specifically belief in jesus the Christ. Who is Jesus the Christ? In Greek, this word Christ is Christos, meaning anointed one. This has so much Old Testament context to it that it would take hours and hours and days and days even to do an introduction on what this means. So I'm going to keep it brief. But perhaps this linguistic connection will drive the point home a bit. Christos in Greek is Messiah in Hebrew. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one of God. He's the promised one. And when was he first promised? Right at the very beginning. Genesis 3.15 is when we get the first promise of a coming seed, a coming Savior. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Isaiah 7.14 picks up this very promise and says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. The woman is going to give birth to a human child. And his name, which is the title of his essence, is going to be God with us. We have both a human, and God. Isaiah 9.6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that can only be given to a deity, and yet it's a child born into humanity. Furthermore, if you look at the first two clauses here, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, in Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme with sound, they rhyme with thought. And that's what's going on here. We have a rhyming thought. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. But we should ask the question, a child born how? Born naturally, of a woman. And a child, or a son rather, given by whom? by God. See, there is going to be a child born. There has been a child born, and he was given by God, God's son, a child born to man. Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation. The promised Messiah is a king. He's bringing salvation, and he's coming humbly. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's going to be rejected. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. But you can't quite talk about the Messiah in the Old Testament without talking about Isaiah 53. Which is interesting because that's probably one of the most challenging chapters in all the Old Testament for modern day Jews. They skip right over this. They don't want to handle it. They don't want to deal with it because it points directly to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 reads, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. Now, this points back to Isaiah 11, where we see that a shoot is going to come out of the branch of Jesse. This is the line of David, the king of Israel. And he's going to grow up naturally like a human. He is a human. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now when Paul wrote Philippians 2, perhaps he even had this in mind, that Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of human. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." You see, the substitutionary death of the Messiah was already present in the Old Testament. This was nothing new when Jesus came on the scene. This could have been understood. For the Jews, this was a stumbling block. Paul calls it such in the New Testament. So much so that they had even, in some sects, designed a double Messiah. One that would die for the sins of the nation and one that would reign as king. Because they had promises of a king who would reign for all of eternity. They had promises that did not coincide with a dead Messiah. But they also had the promise of the Messiah dying on their behalf. Rather than reconciling this as Abraham did with his son Isaac, understanding that God would raise Isaac because he had promises that he had made that would require a resurrection if Abraham were to kill his son. So here with God sacrificing his own son, because of their lack of faith, they did not see that God would resurrect the Messiah. And so he continues, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before the shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression, the judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now as a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied. Notice we've got two he's here. Even the parts of God were understood by the prophet. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, that's just me reading a bunch of scripture, not really going through and explaining it as well as could be, but we see clearly here in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be a substitute for the transgressions, those transgressions which deserved death. The Messiah would die instead. But we also see the life of that Messiah. Psalm 1610, David, who knows that God is not going to leave him dead, that he is looking forward to a resurrection even if he goes to the grave, looks forward to the Messiah who is coming and understands that even though that Messiah is going to die, he will be resurrected. David understood this. And he understood this by faith. Psalm 1610 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, David's soul, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. You know, the body doesn't start decaying until the fourth day. It's in the grave. For the first three days, it's still breaking down all of its systems. The Jews even believed because of this that the soul hovers over the body for three days and doesn't depart then until it begins to decay on the fourth. So here, we know that the Holy One, God's anointed one, God's Messiah, would not be in the grave long enough even to undergo decay. Even from the Old Testament, we could understand the content of faith in the church age. These facts were present. Faith in God's Messiah. Faith in God's anointed one who would bring life by taking away sin. This was already present in the Old Testament, and it's made clear. When we see the manifestation of God's love in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received same gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel he was saved by, that Christ died for our sins. The Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, confirming his death, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Now we can break this down to the gospel side A and the gospel side B. Gospel side A, Christ died. What did it do? It paid for our sins. This was according to the plan of God. As we just looked in the Old Testament very briefly, it was according to the scriptures that this occurred. And he was buried, proving his death. The gospel side B is he was raised. You see, we do believe in the death of Christ, but we don't believe only in the death of Christ. We believe that he was resurrected. His death paid for our sins. His life Gives us life. He was risen on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas. This is proof. He appeared to the twelve and then he appeared to many others. And this is the record of the first part of Acts. But moving forward in 1 Corinthians 15 to verse 17, we also see the importance of his resurrection and in believing in his resurrection. says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And guess what? David could not have said, I know that the Lord will not abandon my soul to Sheol, if the Messiah was not resurrected. That's the uh, thought parallel there in Psalm 16.10. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his life, is just as important as his substitutionary death. We ought to learn what that means. Last week I shared with you this little diagram. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is the two sides of the gospel who he is as the son of man, the one born incarnate God. And the son of God, who being the son of God was able to die not just for one man, not just for himself and punishment for his sin, but having no sin, being the son of God, he was able to die and have his blood affect all men. But you know, this really does boil down to one content of faith, because this is who the Messiah was. This is who he was always going to be, the son of God, the son of man. He would die and he would rise again. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And if we understand our Old Testament, we understand who the Messiah was supposed to be and who the Messiah was. We look at Christ and we see that he died on our behalf so that we no longer have to die. And that he lives now so that we can live in him. So the content of faith is that Jesus is that promised Messiah. He has fulfilled that promise. And if you've believed that, you are born of God. You have been born again. There is no other condition to be saved. But simple faith. Simple belief. And that, at least to me, seemed odd. For quite a while, that's all I got to do, faith. And it's not because I wanted to add works in, though I think that's part of it. But it seemed odd that it's faith and not something else. But then you realize that faith is really where things went wrong in the beginning. It was Eve's lack of faith in God's word. When God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. Did she believe him? She believed her own version of what he said. And because she didn't believe his words, because of her lack of faith, she died. And so our faith meets God at the same juncture where we departed from him. We put our faith in his word. We trust him the way Eve didn't. And he gives us life. And through that, he secures us permanently. John 1.10 says he was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He is the creator, and he came into his own creation. He came to his own, the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, as many as did, believe that he was the promised Messiah, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name who were born, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice it's not just natural birth. It's not just flesh birth. It's not by any will of men. But this is something that is altogether God's doing. And so, the one who loves God should love his brother also. And who are our brothers, our fellow believers? These are the born ones of God. We should love self-sacrificially these ones. Now, this does not mean that we cannot and should not at times extend this love beyond the fellowship, but there is really a breakdown in understanding, a breakdown in spiritual maturity. If sacrificial love does not naturally flow from the believer to his fellow believers, for whom God has already paid the price of everything, because this is our family. These are brothers and sisters, quite literally. But John has another commandment in the second half of verse 1. Whoever loves God loves the child born of him. So in the first part we have faith. Whoever believes is born. In the second part we have whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Now again, in English, we might breeze right past this, but this is the only time in John where he uses this specific word for father. It's not the same word for father that he uses everywhere else. It's not patros, where we get, for example, the Spanish word pater. But here, father is tan genesanta, which means literally the one bringing forth. Remember, we had three different words for sons. We had sons by heir, those who might inherit from the father. Sons who were sons by nature, born and sharing the same characteristics. And we had pideon, who were just children, having no relation linguistically. And so here we have fathers, patros, and the ganesanta. This is one that he made out of a verb. It's not a common or a standard word for father. He's trying to drive home a point. That these, or this is the other side of the technion. There are the born ones of God, those who share in God's character because they have been created through him, just like a child shares in the DNA of the parent. And so this is the DNA giver and the one who's received The DNA. Whoever loves the father loves the child. Whoever loves the begetter loves the begotten. We might say whoever loves the producer loves the product of him. Now, because of the context, we apply this to people, and that's correct. Loves the child born of him. But this really extends to anything. Anything that flows from God is born of him. This verb in English, born of him, is supplied by the English translator. It's just a participial phrase or a, uh, a uh, prepositional phrase from him. That source that we saw. Remember back in 1 John 2.19 where we saw that some had departed because they were not from God. They were not of God. They did not have their source in God, but they had it in the world so whoever loves the one who produces loves the product of that producer because it is from god it has its source in god so each one of us each one of the believers in the body of christ has its source in god our new natures have been born from him and they share intimately in his characteristics just like a child shares in the characteristics of the father But John does like to get into the mechanics of how these things work. It's a simple statement to just say, go love your brother, go love God, but how do you do that? What does that mean? What exactly does that entail? Do we get to define it, or has God defined it by means of the Spirit? And he has. John says, by this we know that we love the child of God, and this by this points forward to this when clause, when we love God and observe his commandments. There is an intimate unity with these commandments, loving God, loving our brothers in Christ. Because you can't do the one without the other. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Well, didn't back here in 420 it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Loving God requires loving your brother. Loving your brother requires loving God. Does this really answer then the question of how do we do this? Well, thankfully, John does add this little bit at the end and observe his commandments. We love our brothers in Christ by observing God's commandments, not theirs. See, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and John's going to get to this towards the end of chapter 5, might have a wrong idea about how they are supposed to live. They might be living in sin and living in the flesh, and we are supposed to intercede on their behalf. We're not supposed to come up to them and say, oh, what do you need to feel better? What do you need to be satisfied? What is the need that you're lacking that I can fill? We go to God. You see, sometimes we have to make those We have to give tough love to our fellow Christians and say, this is what you are looking for, but this is not helpful. This is not something I'll provide to you because this would be breaking God's commandments to do that, and that will not benefit you. There seems to be a, a common thread in a lot of movies today that the dilemma is really, in order to do the right thing, I have to break the law. In order to help this person, I have to do a bad thing. Sometimes we are tempted even to do that in the body of Christ. I need to help this believer because God's not doing it. I need to give them this or give them that or do this for them or make them feel comfortable and loved and pleased rather than saying, snap out of it. This is not of God. If we are not obeying God's commandments, if we are not walking with God, we have no help that we can give to a brother. If we are not walking in the spirit, there is nothing for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with. If we are not obedient to God, if we are not walking by means of the spirit in that obedience, we simply cannot help our brothers and sisters. We cannot love them the way that we ought to. First John 2:4 says the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. This is where John started his argument. This is where he's coming back at the end of his book. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Remember, perfect love or perfected love is love that has reached maturity in the believer. Love that has been properly reciprocated back towards God. He has demonstrated love towards us in sending his son. He continues to demonstrate love towards us and our love is perfected and matured when it is returned to God and the way that that is done is obeying his commandments. In 323, he started to summarize. He says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. So we are supposed to obey the commands of God. Now, In the law of Moses, they devised that there were 613 laws. They counted them all up, they divided them out, they argued over which one is the same law, which one's a duplicate, which one is actually two but looks like one. They did all that. They came up with 613 laws. I took a quick look to try to find if anyone tried to total up all the commandments in the New Testament, and I did find one from the Dake Study Bible, which I don't necessarily recommend. But there were about 1,500 commandments in the New Testament, which is significantly shorter than the Old Testament. And you know what? Each one of these commandments is significantly more difficult to keep than the commandments under the law. And I think this is one of the temptations for Christians today to try to revert back to the law of Moses because it is a lot easier to keep. And if you think that's what you're supposed to keep, you basically get off scot-free. Because first of all, most of those laws you cannot possibly keep today cannot possibly. And so you're off the hook for those ones. So it's just a few of these little laws that you can honestly feel good because in a way I can keep these. Yeah, I can do that. That's not the point. The law is supposed to show you the impossibility of living perfectly apart from Christ, that you need the righteousness of someone else. And so if you think you can live under the law of Moses, you have not understood the law of Moses. But now move to the New Testament and you get commandments like, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be joyful in all things. Be content and be thankful in all things. Or here in Ephesians 4, 425, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth to one, uh, one, to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. How do you do that? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Now, how many of us have even failed that just this morning? So that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, meaning when he leads you, do not refuse him. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see, there are activities, actions that we are told not to do, but most of the commandments in the New Testament are the way we ought to think. This does not exist in the Mosaic covenant. It was a regulation of actions. That's why we are so tempted to try to put ourselves back under the law because those are things we can do with our hands. Much harder, much harder, and something impossible to do by means of the flesh is to live by the law of christ which is almost entirely laws of how to conduct conduct your mental life be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving each other just as god in christ also has forgiven you how are we ever supposed to do this paul comes to the end of himself in romans 7 When he comes to the same realization how am i ever ever going to do this the answer is paul never can paul the old man that flesh and sin nature can never ever keep the perfect righteousness the law of god but the new nature can because the spirit is the power and the energy of that new nature But you did not learn Christ in this way. The question should be asked, how did the Ephesians learn Christ? Here are all these problems with the mental model of the Gentiles, the way that they're thinking, the darkness of their thoughts. How is learning Christ going to change that? You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind. Change the way you are thinking and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is the new nature created in God. It is created for good works, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. These new works are not only prepared, but they are done by means of the Spirit. It is putting aside the flesh, which is energized by having commandments that it can do in the flesh. But the flesh is the sin nature. And so what energy you want to give it to do the good things is never going to result in doing the good things because this would lead to pride in the flesh and this would lead you away from Christ and not towards him. And so we have this impossible standard. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. John has a wonderful way of getting us lost before getting us found. And I think even in his efforts to get us found, if we aren't careful, we might just get further lost because we might be tempted to just simply disagree with him. Because what does he say? His commandments are not burdensome. Now we just looked at a few commandments and you tell me, didn't those sound burdensome? Read Romans 7 and stop before you get to the last verse and tell me, did Paul think they were burdensome? Absolutely. But this is why the verse numbering is so unfortunate in 1 John chapter 5, because verse 4, part A, explains verse 3, part B. This is what's called a haughty clause, it is subordinate to the previous clause. It explains what's going on. When John says his commandments are not burdensome, how is this possible? Because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Oops. Matthew 5:20. Jesus speaking to the Jews about the law of Moses that they thought that they were keeping, but really were not. They thought it would save them. But the law was never given to save, either in justification or in sanctification. Matthew 5.20 says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you could look at the Pharisees and the scribes, Sadducees, and you could say, well, those are incredibly righteous men. They do deeds. They dedicate their whole life to keeping the law. They dedicate their whole life to trying to live Christ's righteousness without Christ. It'll never work. Remember 1 John 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah who takes away that sin, this is the one who's born of God. And so how are we to understand his commandments, to do his commandments because we're born of God? Because he has already produced that in us. Remember 1 John 3.9, no one who is born of God sins because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now this is an incredibly difficult verse if we do not understand the dual nature of the saved believer, still having the old nature in the flesh. Still being able to shift that power source to the flesh, to energize that, to think that I can keep God's commandments without him. That I can make myself acceptable by doing things rather than doing things because I am already made acceptable. The one who is born of God being the new nature now living in the believer. The one who is born of God, oh, that's an unfortunate typo does not sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Remember 1 John four seventeen, as he is, so also are we in the world. This is an identity truth. Knowing who we are, focusing our minds not on the actions that our flesh wants to do, but on the actions that Christ has already done. The victory that he has already made over the world recognizing that this victory, just like the death that he died on the cross, is already finished. The death that he died on the cross is our victory over death. The life that he lived after the cross is already our victory over the world. Romans 6.3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, this doesn't mean that we have mortified the flesh by paying penance and locking ourselves away in monasteries and copying the text. This is not what it means to be baptized into his death. This is an identity truth. Something that we might not even realize has occurred. This isn't something we make real to us. This is something we understand the reality of. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Perfect tense. It is a finished, done deal. The moment you've believed. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the victory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. These are equal truths. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So now if we have died with Christ, and this is a first-class conditional, meaning we take for granted that this is true, we might say now since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is true of you. Because your identity is in his death and in his life. The goal now is to understand that that is true. Romans 6 gives us commands of how to live like this. And every single one of those commands has to do with your thought process. Reckon that this is true. Consider that this is true. Count on this being true. This is the victorious Christian life. Believing in Him and His work. Believing in what He has done. The Christian life is not going out and serving so that we might be counted acceptable to God. The Christian life is understanding that we are acceptable to God and that we have been given a new life in God through Christ and that he has given us the spirit by means or by which we can actually do the commandments that he has given us. Romans eight ten says, if Christ is in you, and again, we take for granted that this is true. Though the body is dead because of sin, the flesh, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And this is not our righteousness, but this is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But if the spirit of him who was raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Romans 8:15, you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. You are now sons of God. This is how you're able to keep his commands, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and have children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, And that's another tricky phrase. We have to remember that this is in the context of our identity with him. This doesn't mean that, yes, every Christian is going to experience suffering at some point in their life. Now, this is probably true, but that's not what Paul is writing here. We do suffer with him, and that is what Romans 6 is about. Because he suffered, we don't. Our suffering has been shifted to his account. Because our death has been died but it wasn't done by us. It was done by Him. We did suffer with Him. We did it through faith. And it was no challenge for us because He did all the work necessary for it so that we may also be glorified together with Him. Through our faith in Him, by means of the grace that He has extended to us through His death, we have the guarantee of glorification together with Him. So if now we have the past finished, and taken care of on the cross. We have the future absolutely guaranteed that we'll be glorified together with Him. Our position, as we talked about last week, is already in the heavenlies with Christ, seated at the right hand of God. In this life, we are as He it was. We are identified with Him then. We have been given the ability to live His life because the resurrection life lives in us in that new nature, and the Spirit empowers that. Now, in, again, we look at this first part of chapter, or verse 4, and in this explanation, we get a word that we don't expect. Whereas everywhere else, John has been using a masculine whoever, here he says, Whatever. We might use the English word, anything. Anything that is the product of God overcomes the world. This includes the saved believer. But this includes everything else that is produced from him. All of the commandments that he gives us. This is a product of God. The life that we live, it's lived by him. So that 1 John 2:15 when we're told do not love the world or the things of the world remember that's the alternate source, the alternate source of power. If anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the boastful pride of life it's not from the father but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is our life in Him, identified with His work. And so that this is the victory that has overcome the world. And that is our faith. It's not our penance. It's not our penitence. It's not our suffering that we try to put ourselves with so that we can identify with Him on the cross. It's understanding that we are already identified with Him on the cross. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How is it that this has overcome the world? In 2 Corinthians 4.3, we see that initial faith already has something that needs to be overcome. Even if our gospel is veiled, and this is taken for granted that it is true, the gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, this is the victory that Eve did not have in the garden. The victory of faith. When Satan came and tempted her, she folded. This is the God of this world, Satan, who deceives and blinds those who belong to him because they have their source in him, not yet in God. The gospel is offered to them as a light in the darkness, as Christ's love shining forth in his crucifixion. And it's veiled to those who are perishing. And so faith overcomes that veil, shifts it from, I can save myself by doing righteous deeds. To, I cannot do it myself. Christ has already done it all. Ephesians 2 8 makes more sense in that context. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is the means that it has been completed. Faith is the means by which we receive it. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Initial faith is victorious because it overcomes the deception of this world. This is something the Holy Spirit helps us do. This is something the Holy Spirit energizes the unbeliever to do, and this is one of the only things that it energizes the unbeliever to do. The unbeliever can reject that ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has to be present, and He is present to all unbelievers, convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But notice as well, this, again, in the English, is not captured as well as it could be. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, putting it in a perfect tense in the English, meaning a past action with present result, And though this is true, this is only one aspect of what the verb in the Greek contains. Because the Greek is an aorist, which views the whole action as a united whole. It doesn't make distinctions on time. It just looks at it as overcoming. This action of overcoming. There's a lot of different kinds of aorists. This one is called a gnomic aorist. Daniel Wallace describes this. He says, the aorist indicative is occasionally used to present timeless general facts. We might call this proverbial truth, a proverb, something that's just true. It's not talking about a specific action in the past. It's not talking about a specific action in the present or the future. It's just true. When it does, it does not refer to a particular event that did happen, but to a generic event that does happen. Normally, it is translated like a simple present tense. It has nothing to do with garden gnomes, but I couldn't resist. You gotta make grammar interesting somehow. So this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, as tempting as it is to leave it in the perfect tense, because I do believe this speaks of all believers, all believers have overcome the world by initial faith their salvation is secured by that they are overcomers by that but this overcoming life can and should continue this is a gnomic truth a proverbial truth at whatever time faith is present that is the only place victory is had if you are successful in running a christian homeless shelter And you think somehow this is going to increase your standing before God. It's not. If you think that somehow going out and adopting 50 children and giving them a perfect life and a perfect home is going to endear you to God. It's not. No work that you do in the flesh is ever going to endear you to God. Isaiah came to this understanding. When he says all the Good deeds of the righteous are filthy rags before the Lord. What is he saying? Even those saved believers who seek to do good things, those good things are as if they are soiled diapers. It's one of the most crass statements in all of scripture. He says anything. We do in the flesh. Anything we try to do apart from God is sinful by nature. So even trying to keep the commandments of God apart from His righteousness, apart from His power that He has given to do it in the Spirit, even that is sinful because it is prideful. In Acts, we see this moment of initial faith, this victory that a jailer has over the world. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He is entrenched in the world system, the way the world works. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now Paul was in prison more than once. And in all those times, he was still victorious. In all those times, he was an overcomer in Christ. In all those times, he was content. Because it wasn't about his situation in the world, because he didn't consider his situation in the world, but rather his situation in Christ. But this jailer is looking at his situation in the world, sees his life now threatened by the rulers of Rome, and seeks to end it himself. So where he is looking for death, Paul, standing in a jail cell, even having the opportunity to escape, choosing not to, because that's not victory. Having victory by the world's standard is not having victory by God's standard. And so Paul is perfectly content to sit there, because the victory that is about to occur is in the spiritual realm. And he was prepared and ready to be God's vehicle for helping this unbeliever reach this initial victory. He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Because Paul and Silas continued to trust in the Lord, continued to look at the world through God's perspective rather than through Rome's perspective, they were there and ready to be used by the Lord when someone else needed that witness that they could bring. And so, yes, we overcome the world through initial faith and we continue to overcome the world only by faith. It is a terrible heresy that we are saved by faith alone and sanctified by works. This has never been the case. It never is the case and it never will be the case. We are sanctified by the same means we are saved, by faith in Jesus Christ, in God's work and not our own. Because we are identified with Christ in his death and in his life and in John 16:33, at the end of the upper room discourse, where John taught the disciples about the abiding life in him, what is the assurance that he gave them but this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So in closing, our main idea this morning was it is often said that the hardest thing in the world for the Christian to believe is the substitutionary death of Christ. On the contrary, the hardest thing to believe is the substitutionary life of Christ. We got victory over death by his death. We shall have victory in life by his life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son for the promise that you made in Genesis to Eve when she first failed to have faith in you and by it brought in death to all humanity. We thank you that you looked at her and you promised a Savior, not just a Savior that would come into the world, but a Savior who would come through her. We thank you that you were faithful to do this, that we have a Messiah who's fully God and fully man, who died that we don't have to, and who lived so that we are able to. We praise you and we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.